The sports world has been greening itself for most of the century, but despite these efforts, most fans have no idea. That changes now. Welcome to Green Sports Pod. Hosted by Lou Blaustein, Green Sports Pod highlights the successes, challenges, and opportunities to green the games we love to watch and play, and give you the chance to hear from the athletes who are taking positive environmental actions. Learn more and subscribe to the show today at greensportsblog.com. Welcome to Green Sports Pod. I'm your host, Lou Blaustein, and today we have a conversation with someone who I think is truly revolutionizing the green sports world in a number of different ways, and in particular, using the world's most popular sport, soccer or football. And we are talking during the Women's World Cup and in the run-up to the upcoming Premier League season. So I cannot think of a better time to welcome in the founder of Pledge Ball, Katie Cross. Katie, welcome to Green Sports Pub. Thank you, Lou. I'm absolutely delighted to be here. It's great to have you here. And your story is so rich and so important. I want to dig right in. Well, first of all, just tell me what Pledge Ball is about. Basics. So very top line, Pledge Ball is about shifting us and the football community and sports community in general away from that feeling of paralysis that we as individuals tend to feel when it comes to climate. There are certain words that turn people off to climate. We know that. Green, climate, sustainability, anything to do with climate. The reason for that is that it's a really overwhelming problem and people don't feel as though they can have any impact. And so the automatic response to that is to turn off from it. You know, like death. We don't think about death every day, but we know it happens. It's a similar thing. The difference with death is that for the most part, there's much less we can do about it. But with this, there's really something we can do. And what we need to try and do is to really demonstrate to people the impact they can have. What we're trying to do at Pledge Ball is to mobilize that 25% of people to basically adopt a new social norm. That 25% we know is an inflection point that then brings about this social and cultural shift because we know that we need to have behavior change. We need to shift the way in which people live and the values that they use when they're making choices. We know that up to 70% of emissions can be cut by 2050 through enabling behavior and lifestyle change. But how do you bring that shift about? And this is what Pledgeable aims to do. First of all, what an important aim. And using the world's most popular sport, soccer, or I'll use your frame, football, to do it makes a lot of sense. What do you say to the people who say, well, individual actions don't really matter? I've even said this myself at times. Oh, we need systemic change. We need macro change. We need government action. It's corporations. Me taking a shorter shower isn't going to make that big a difference. What do you say to that? I love this question. So there's a whole load of things in here. Firstly, you need both of those things. You need the individual and you need the systemic, but they're also completely interlinked. They're not mutually exclusive. From an individual change perspective, that feeds into the systemic, not only because you then have people who are essentially making decisions that do ripple out. So there was a report recently that I read in Ethical Consumer magazine 
And they'd been very, very cynical to start with about any kind of impact of consumer buying. And they came back with a report that they were delighted to say, and I think it was around ESG investment, but to really show a really dramatic market shift because of consumers really exercising their choice. So that's the first. If you're not willing to use your voice, which is fine if that's where you're at, even just the consumer choice has a really significant impact. The second part of this is that if you said to somebody, right, we need systemic change. Okay, well, how are we going to bring that about? Well, you need to go and you need to make your voice heard. You need to accelerate that. It feels like a very difficult thing to do. And you're not going to get people on board in that way. We've talked already about how people shy away from climate. Not only is it because of this paralysis they feel, but also because they see taking action on climate as something that activists do. And they don't identify with activists. They feel this kind of real alienation from being an activist. And so that leaves them doing nothing. We've got to move away from that because, A, there is a huge amount of power in numbers in terms of directly reducing emissions. If we all chose to make certain choices in life, there was a BBC News article that came out, I think, yesterday, publicizing some research that said that if all of those meat eaters within the UK just cut their consumption in half, I think it was, it would equate to taking millions and millions of cars off the road. So there is huge power in numbers of terms of directly reducing emissions. Then, of course, you've got the systemic pressure from that. But the other thing is, if you immediately go for the high impact, that's all we're going to accept, you're leaving out vast swathes of the populations who can have a really significant impact. Everybody has to start their journey somewhere, and that journey will have an impact no matter where it is. Then once you start to feel empowered that you can actually have this impact, that kind of influence you have ripples out inside your own spheres of influence, whether it's chatting with your mother-in-law about trying to get her to reduce her meat consumption or whether it's talking with your friends down the pub about walking to a game or whatever else, that ripples out and then things start to become easier and you see there's more point. And that's where, I mean, I come out maybe coming at it from a different way than you just eloquently said it. And I think your way of saying it is absolutely spot on. My analogy is, if you do one thing, whatever that thing is, you're on an on-ramp. And that's going to make you more likely to do the next thing. And then the next thing. And then the next thing until you're on the highway of cleanly powered climate action. And so get doing something. What thing is better than the other thing? I'm not even smart enough to know. I would totally agree with that. The only thing I would say is that as an engagement organization that we are, we do have a responsibility to ensure that we do then support that user journey. Because there is research that suggests that people feel good about the small things and therefore they abandon the high impact changes. And what we don't want is that. But as I said, if you only go for the high impact things, you're going to leave out engaging a whole load of people. What do you define as the high impact things? So things like reducing your meat consumption, people are much more willing to recycle properly, to use a reusable water bottle. All of these things are much easier things. The big shifts are things like reducing meat consumption, traveling more sustainably, maybe flying once every three years if you're going to fly sharing a car if you can, rather than owning a car, buying secondhand clothes, all of those things are big shifts that are the high impact ones. But people maybe won't, maybe if you presented that with people in the first instance, they see it's very alienating. They think, I can't do any of those things. But once you start to get on that journey, you're right. They're much more likely to do those things. But 
as a fan engagement tool that we offer, we take that responsibility for taking people on that journey. Because I think also two high impact things that are not normally included in the list that you offered, which the list you offered makes sense, but two that often get ignored, I'll say, in this whole discussion are four letter words, but they're not four letter words like you can't say on a podcast. (laughs) The two that I think are as high impact as they come are talk as in talk about it and vote as in vote and vote with your pocketbook and your ballot. Oh, I totally agree. And those need to be included in whatever impact level you want. To me, it's at the, near the top. A hundred percent. I mean, I'm totally in agreement with that. That was not an exclusive list I provided. We're singing from the same hymn sheet there. Is using your voice is absolutely key. Awesome. Okay, there's more that we're going to get into about Pledge Ball. But before we do, I want to get into how you even got into this in the first place. From my knowledge of you, you're a mom, you love football, and then somehow pledge ball happens. <laughs> yeah, that's how it was. It's just like that. Yeah, just like that. So maybe there's more to it that you can give our listeners. Yeah, I mean, this is slightly crazy because you say I'm mom and I was chatting to my friends the other day and my sustainability journey did not happen when I first had kids. I look back at photos of myself and I had very little regard for which is crazy because I used to teach, I used to teach science. I have a biology degree. I always taught climate, but it just didn't resonate. It was something that I always knew about. It was just there and I never properly engaged. And then I'm not entirely sure when the turning point was, but as soon as I realized exactly the state of things and where we were at, maybe I was reading more, I'm not sure. Then I immediately wanted to take action. And I took action by volunteering for Extinction Rebellion and had firsthand experience of people's knee-jerk response to Extinction Rebellion. And essentially, when you boil down what they're protesting for to simple questions, would you like clean air to breathe? Would you like to prevent societal collapse, (laughs) et cetera, et cetera? Everybody agrees, but people's automatic reaction is not to engage and to feel very alienated. And so my thinking was, we need to engage the rest of the people. And Extinction Rebellion for our listeners, maybe you could just share what that is, because I think it's more well known over on your side of the pond than it is here. Extinction Rebellion is a group that basically campaigns by causing disruption because by all accounts, that is really the only way in which you're actually going to get this to be noticed. A little anecdote for you, Extinction Rebellion decided they were going to be less disruptive. So they do things, it's all peaceful protest and they deliberately do that. It's things that disrupt normal life um, so that you're advocating for structural change here. But they took the decision to basically reduce this Disruption, I think, is the word. They had 100,000 people attend a march in London, but it didn't cause so much disruption and it barely got covered in the media. So that's what they do. So it's like Just Stop Oil. Just Stop Oil is a group that they're not backing off. They're putting paint on the greens at the Open Championship or they, I think they disrupted Wimbledon a week or two ago. Are they kind of in the same ballpark, so to say? They are. I mean, they tend to target a lot of companies as well um, that are specific fossil fuel companies as well. But yes, it's around disruption to make sure that we make our voices heard, basically. Fundamentally, and certainly when we look back on this, we're not going to disagree with anything they are campaigning for. And I imagine there's going to be a fair bit of gratitude that this (laughs) unanimously felt, to be perfectly frank. But we're not in that boat at the moment. 
we need something alongside it to basically engage everybody else, to engage people who don't feel that they self-identify with Extinction Rebellion and Just Stop Oil. And maybe get put off by it because they are being made to feel guilty in a way. Yes, exactly. But also they're just not engaged. So instead, often a lot of media channels particularly focus on the negative around it because it's much easier for some of these things like disruption to everyday life to resonate with people because people have enough, you know, have a lot of day-to-day hurdles to deal with. They don't engage with the bigger picture, especially because of how it's been presented to them. So this was where this kind of came about. I thought we need something else to basically engage a lot of people. And at the time, my partner was kind of going through this point where he was also realizing the situation we're in, what the world is very rapidly turning into. And his response to that was just utter despair, this kind of existential despair, really. And so I started researching what we could do at home to reduce our own emissions. I shared this with some of my football team. And at the time, I was very new to this squad of women. There's about 45 women there. I only started playing football in my late 20s. Where is this and where is your home base? In Bristol in the UK, so the southwest, right on the border with Wales. And I shared it with these women. And like I said, I don't really know them. A lot of them are much younger than me, all from different walks of life. I wasn't really sure how they'd respond. I remember having to talk myself into doing it. And it was just some stats around how many emissions we'd save and also the amount of waste we'd save if we all switched to using sustainable menstrual products. And the response back was awesome. It was completely nuts, really positive, loads of questions. It started up this conversation. And then this grassroots team and I decided that we would set up a tournament. And this tournament would be around raising awareness around climate and what we could do as a collective it grew into the fact that we would ask everybody, it would be entirely free. So we found a free venue. It was a men's and women's five-a-side tournament. It was really big in the end. And the only entry fee was to make a pledge. And then we rewarded the team, a pledge being a pro-environmental pledge. So ranging from switching to using reusable water bottles, eating plant-based two days a week to installing solar panels. And the team of players that pledged to save the most emissions won a trophy as well as the winners of the tournament when it came to how many goals they scored. We did various activations around it. Like we had a load of free food we'd gathered from various restaurants and shops to highlight food waste. We had free bike servicing on offer. And the great thing about it was that it promoted loads of conversation. And then from there, I met Claire Poole. And it's because somebody had said, why don't you, have you seen this conference? Spoke to her. She was incredibly encouraging. Invited me along to the what was then the Virtual Sport Positive Summit. And when I spoke to people within sport and stakeholders in sport, they thought it was a great idea. So we then launched with a semi-professional club in Brighton. But my first kind of thought was, does this even work? So the way in which it works with clubs is they encourage fans to make pledges in support of their club. And they essentially compete against the other teams in their league and against the opposition. Because I had no idea if this worked. And there was literally no point me doing it unless it worked. We basically, not commissioned because we didn't pay for it, but I approached a researcher who has written a lot of papers around mobilizing football fans around other social causes, a guy called Dr. Mark Deutsch, asked him to design me a piece of research. And actually, in the end, one of the master's students who was interned to him, an amazing woman called Jenny Aman, know her, carried out her master's thesis, you do, <laughs> on how fans experience pledgeable at this pilot club. And it very definitely showed that it brings about this transformative shift in thinking that we wanted to bring about, essentially. And so from there, it's grown. When did you start this? When did you first have that with your original team where you first had the event where you got the food from the restaurants and such? So that was September 2019. 
wow, we're not even four years through. So what happened next? So we launched this club. Jenny carried out this research. I've managed to persuade Dr. Mark Deutsch to become a pledgeable trustee. So he oversees all of our monitoring and evaluation. And then it's just kind of grown. We launched with a professional club in Bristol, Bristol City SC, who played the championship and recruited a whole load more clubs. Championship, by the way, folks, for the U.S. North American market, that's the second league. The Premier League is the top. The championship is the second league. Or maybe you're familiar with this if you watch Ted Lasso because he went through it all. <laughs> yeah, exactly. In fact, you need to get Richmond if they have another season. But anyway, continue. We got loads of clubs on board, but we also were very keen to make sure we had this multi-pronged approach. The platforms of football and athletes is amazing, but you also need that ground-up approach. You need the pit. To quote a group of researchers we were lucky enough, or we are lucky enough to work with called Climate Outreach, who are experts in climate engagement, you need peer-to-peer messages. You need credible messages and messages that speak to underlying core values. And for that, you need people to take the pledgeable mechanism and use it from within communities. I can't go and tell people, come on, come and join us, because a lot of people won't relate to me. We partner with Football Supporters Association within the UK. And they have supporters groups across the country. And we work very closely with them, basically to have that ground up campaign as well. We've had, for example, a club called Burnley this year who came on as a pledgeable club. But the reason why it became a pledgeable club is because the year before we worked with a group of fans who called themselves the Sustainable Clarets. They got a lot of other fans on board. Then the club got on board and they're also supporting the club on in-house sustainability now. And it's kind of grown from there. We had Green Football Weekend in the UK. We organized BT Sport and Sky and various other organizations. We work in other sports. We launched with the Lawn Tennis Association at the beginning of the grass court season this year. Congratulations. Thank you. And I mean, the impact assessment and the research continues as a core part of it because there isn't much research in this area. Jenny's literary review in her thesis certainly drew upon a lot of literature from outside sport and applied it to this situation and then did obviously primary research around basically the shift that happened in fans at this pilot club. But there's a lot of research that still needs to be done in this space. And so we work with a number of dissertation students around this. And we also have a very highly qualified impact assessor on at the moment, working with us on both the Lawn Tennis Association work and the work we've done with Birmingham County FA, just to ensure really that as we continue to do this, we do it responsibly and make sure that everything that we're doing actually has the maximal impact. To summarize, basically, if you are a fan of Bristol FC. Careful. There are two teams in Bristol. <laughs> I'll have the gas heads absolutely killing me here. <laughs> Wait, there's Bristol Rovers also, right? Yes. And then what's the other one? Bristol City. Bristol City. <laughs> and Bristol City's the one in championship? Yeah. So Bristol City in the championship, and they play Leicester, who got relegated into the championship. And I'm a fan of Bristol City, and I find out about this. I can pledge to, if I eat meat five days a week and I reduce it by two days a week to three, that's going to be points for me and thus points for Bristol City. And then I am going to, instead of driving to work five days a week. I'm going to drive three and I'm going to take the bus two, And that's going to give me some more points. And then there's going to be other people like me doing this for Bristol City. And then there will be hopefully fewer people, but a lot 
doing it for Leicester and we're going to do more than the Leicester people and we win that week's match. Exactly. And then you climb up the league table. So it works as simply as that. The only thing I'd say there is that it's not based on points. It's based on the amount of emissions you've pledged to save. So Got it. it kind of works like a reverse carbon calculator. And this is really crucial because it really shows the tangible impact of the collective then. You sit in that stadium, you can see everyone around you. We use stats such as, this stat is going to be wrong because I can't remember what it is, but it's something near this. I think I know it for Wembley. So if you're sat in Wembley and you look around you, that has capacity of 90,000. So one Wembley's worth of fans, like reducing shower time to five minutes, equates to taking over 500 cars off the road. And you see those fans around you and you think that's not a big change, but look at the impact it has. And it's really tangible. You can feel it. So what happens in the league is that those fixtures are there. Bristol City are playing, Leicester on Saturday. Fang goes onto the website. They make one or a number of these pledges in support of the Robins, Bristol City. It tells them as they're pledging what quantity of emissions they'll save through carrying out each of those pledges. So it works kind of like a reverse carbon calculator, but without the fear factor, which, as the research showed, really helps to increase awareness. You know, a lot of people said, I didn't realize that had an impact. They hadn't bothered doing it because they just didn't realize it had an impact. The other really key thing that came back from the research on engaging with that pledge list was that it also increased their holistic awareness. One interviewee said that he'd pledged to take five-minute showers, but in so doing, had seen the pledge to reduce meat consumption. And although he didn't feel like he could do that now, he started to carry that awareness with him when he next went shopping. It definitely increased that. But also the key thing, as I said about it, is it makes very visible the power of the collective. And that makes perfect sense because also if I want my team to win... If I'm doing these actions, I'm going to tell my friend Dave and my friend Margaret and my friend whoever, oh, you got to do this now. Exactly. Because we want to beat Lester on and off the pitch. So that's the power of the collective, as you say. Now, what about, because pledge is one half of the name, pledge and ball. It's one thing to make a pledge. It's another thing to take an action. And I imagine you get this question a fair bit. Just a hunch. <laughs> what percent of the pledges actually turn into action? Question mark. So this is a great question. You're right. Thank you very much. <laughs> I do my best. <laughs> so this was something we considered really early on. We were like, do we ask for any kind of evidence? How do we know if they carry out their pledge? So there are a few things that fed into this. Well, first of all, how would you know? So you could ask them to submit a photo. That's just a single snapshot in time. At some point, everybody's going to have a vegetarian meal, right? So you could just send that in. And there's no indication of whether that's become a sustained change. It also is no indication of whether you start to carry this kind of holistic awareness with you, because that's really what we want, is that people to start kind of carrying a carbon currency. So in the same way that when you go shopping, you decide whether to buy something based on its monetary value, people need to start carrying this awareness of the impact they're having. Yes, we measure things in terms of money across the board, but actually the things that make us happy are green spaces and clean air and all the rest of it. So to start carrying that kind of awareness with us when we make those decisions, how do you assess that? The other thing with it was, was that if we ask for any kind of evidence like that, it immediately shifts the kind of relationship we have with people. This isn't about checking up. This is about saying, look at the collective impact we can have. Fancy joining us in this movement. Not oh, can you do this? And now we're going to check that you've done it. And it also becomes quite patronizing then. So that's why we went down that route of research. 
the only way in which we were truly going to know if this had any kind of impact was if we actually assessed it through academic research. Unless you follow somebody 24-7, which scarily, there are tools out there that are proposing to do this, that, you know, monitor your bank details so you can prove that you've started shopping in this particular place or in this particular place. But is that what we want it to become? No. And the thing, as you were talking, that really resonated the most with me was this kind of punitive, are you really doing this? It's like, your mom or your dad checking in on kids kind of thing. So how is the research designed to get an estimate of what percent of pledges are actually turning into actions? So this aspect we decided actually wasn't a metric of success. Because if you ask somebody that question, how are they going to answer that? Instead, what we look at, well, there's a number of different things. So we tend to look at, for example, the amount of conversation that's happening around climate. Are people talking about climate more regularly? How much do they prioritize sustainability in their decision making? We do look at behaviors, but it's a self-reporting thing. They're deciding on how much more they're doing it. And yes, this gives you an indication, but yes, we do look at that. We also look at a shift in kind of misconception. So a lot of people very clearly thought that the smaller actions maybe had a bigger impact than they did. What we want to see is people who are more likely to carry out those bigger actions now as a result of going through this. So we also assess that, which gives us a really good indication. We do this through a variety of means. We do surveys, we do baseline assessments through these surveys, we do subsequent assessment through surveys, but we also, which is really key, is the qualitative part of that, so the interviews that we carry out with people. I say we, I don't have any part to do with this. It's always kind of independent researchers that do it. I certainly don't have that skill set. So that's how it's really assesses the impact that we have. And like I said, I mean, it's only very recently I got paid at all for doing this, but even getting paid, people ask me why I do this. This is such a fundamental need for me to actually bring about this shift. A lot of it is fueled by fear for my kids. They're very near future, not kind of a generations to come thing, but they're very near future. I spoke to, in fact, our impact assessor that we've just employed, well, employed for the LTM Birmingham County FA work, and he's sat in Greece at the moment. The heat is 45 degrees centigrade. For you Fahrenheit people, I don't know exactly what it is, <laughs> but it's bloody hot. It is. 100 plus. He says, even inside, unless you've got aircon, you can't do anything after nine in the morning. The heat is insane. It's 113. I did that calculation in my head. Not really, but it's And Greece is not normally like that. No. So... That's what it's fueled by. If this didn't work, quite frankly, I'd do it in a different way. Hey, I can relate completely to you. And we've always related on this level. Why am I doing this work with eco-athletes and Green Sports Blog, but really eco-athletes as kind of like the thing that I think can make the most impact? And I don't have kids, but I feel like, okay, so then what can I do for the next generation? What can be a legacy that will make some bit of difference in turning us away even a smidge from the carbon cliff we're heading for. And that's what motivates me. That's it. And do I get depressed about it? Yeah. Do I get like, oh my God, this is just so... But then, and I don't know about you, but I'm inspired by you, first of all. Do you say that to everybody having a podcast? No, no. (laughs) Because you've gone from just an idea to making an organization, to making a movement. And now you've got a partner and you are 
actually getting paid, which by itself isn't the whole thing, but that just shows that you've struck a chord. And that is inspiring because that shows that there is an audience for this. I don't know if there's a hunger for this, but you're kind of stoking it. And that shows that through the work I'm doing on eco-athletes, maybe that's another way of doing it. So I'm truly inspired by you and also inspired by the athletes that I work with because they want to make a difference. And so I am more optimistic than not actually, but I'm also not insane. And I know that this is just a one hellacious problem that has a lot of solutions and we have to get to the solutions yesterday. That's very kind of words. There's a lot of people who I meet in this space who I find really inspiring. It is a battle because at the moment, the norm isn't to prioritize sustainability. And a lot of the time it's shrugged off. Are you kidding? We were talking just before. Oh, Chelsea is beating Wrexham here in the United States. <laughs> yeah. I'm not picking on them. I'm a Tottenham fan. Spurs are playing. I don't even know. I think they lost to West Ham and Singapore. So they're traveling. And these are organizations, mind you, that are having green games that are talking about and doing some really good green things. But then the list of traveling without concern is endless. Well, this is the thing. And I mean, why is that? Because all of their metrics of success, their priority ones are all financial based. Performance on the pitch relies on the finances because you need to buy in players. It's so short term. And also that boils down to then every individual within that organization, all of their performance management targets will contribute towards this until we start to shift that and it becomes obligatory or we really demonstrate the commercial benefits of authentically addressing sustainability. And that research isn't there yet. There are indications. Or if Dale Vince's new airline, which is going to be electric based. It's hydrogen. And hydrogen based takes off, pun intended, and we can make flying less injurious to the environment. So there are different ways of doing this, and we have to do all of the above. So Innes Fitzgerald, who I'm sure you know of her, she decides she's a cross-country runner, top cross-country runner in UK or England. I don't know if it's you guys have so many countries in that country, I can't figure it out. But <laughs> she's 17 years old, I think. And she, on her own volition, decided not to go to the World Cross-Country Championships in Australia because of the carbon emissions that she would be contributing going back and forth. Meanwhile, the whole world is in Australia and New Zealand for the Women's World Cup. And is that a bad thing? How do we navigate all these things? I think, and I had this discussion very recently because some of these women, over 40, nearly 50 of these women who are playing the World Cup have decided, and in inverted commas, to take responsibility for their emissions flying to the World Cup. And the way in which they've done that is that guided by Football for Future and Common Goal, they have invested in some climate resilience projects over there. Alongside that, they've said that this speaks to needing to consider carbon when allocation of host city. It's an interesting discussion because, so firstly, it's very brave of the players to stand up and do this in that not many people have done it previously. A lot of athletes are very afraid of doing it, as you'll well know, because of a fear of being treated as hypocrites. Now, I think the questions I have around it are whether 
there are more effective ways in which they could have stood up and made a stand. I think standing up and saying this needs to be considered in host city, brilliant, in host city allocation, in tournament structures, that all needs to be considered. Another way in which they could have done it would be maybe to say, look, this for me in my job is currently an unavoidable emission. But these are the other things I am also doing within my own life to reduce my own emissions. Because here, the really key thing is the optics. They're making a statement. And if the statement, my concern and my questions really are, is even though they're deliberately not offsetting, they're investing in resilience projects, does that start still to normalize the thought that a solution to the climate crisis is to carry on as normal and to pay somewhere that will essentially maybe do something to mitigate it in some way? Well, planting trees or investing in climate resilience projects clearly isn't the solution to the climate crisis. And my concern is that if this becomes normalized, it very much slows the route that we need to follow, which is absolute reduction of emissions. I know I saw that Sean McCabe with Bohemian FC, for example, have said that their strategy is not net zero, it's actual zero. So that is what they're striving towards. And if we're going to actually address this, that's the route we need to go down. We need to move away from assuming that the norm is to offset. And I want to reiterate For those players, that is brilliant. That really is a move. And I think we'll see more and more of that as women's football comes to the fore. But I think they need to be guided in a way that maybe considers these nuances. I think it's both. I think they could do what they did and also do what you suggested. Definitely. But maybe keep what they did in the background because they did do both. However, I also think that, don't worry, audience, I'm not going to go down the offset rabbit hole too deeply. Because we'll be on for another hour and we're not going to (laughs) be. However, I think there are offsets that are legitimate carbon remediation offsets right now that you can invest in. And closing off methane leaks to me is like right there. And as opposed to the tree planting or some of the other offsets, which are not real climate. I mean, we're kind of talking about two different things here in a way. We absolutely need to attract investment into projects that, well, with the cutting off of carbon leaks, that's reduction, but also in terms of carbon capture and improving biodiversity and improving resilience to these communities that are being really badly affected by climate. But that needs to be done and there needs to be a mechanism for doing that. I think the concern is that, like I said, that needs to be kind of part of the transition that goes in the background. You do everything you possibly can to reduce emissions first. And then what you can't currently, that's done in the background because I think the optics of it are concerning because like I said, that starts to become the norm. That will be the route that people follow rather than saying, oh, actually, how can I reduce emissions? Where if you start to normalize trying to do what you can as much as you can to reduce emissions, that starts to become the norm. That starts to filter out. People start to imagine doing that rather than just continuing to do what they're doing and investing money elsewhere. I see what you're saying and I largely agree with it. I think that, and I'll just stick on methane for a second, being that it's a hundred times more powerful a greenhouse gas than CO2, which is the greenhouse gas we most associate with it. If you invest in making a big reduction in methane leaching, that just gives you a little more time to do the carbon reductions that need to be done now. In other words, I put that in its own category, I guess. I think that has such 
immediate because the technology is really there. But I think I'm getting us down the rabbit hole that I said I wasn't going to (laughs) do. I mean, it's not an exclusivity argument and there are different nuances to it. So it's not clear cut. I think this one thing, like I said, that maybe we finished this argument on is that it can't be normalized that that is the route. It has to come as a secondary because we have to reduce emissions if we're going to address this. I will agree to that. (laughs) It's not even a hard agreement to make. So what I want to close on, my last question to you is, and it's a question people hate to get, but I'm an interviewer. I got to do it. It's the law. (laughs) Five years out from now, we're almost then at 2030, which is a target date that is in all manner of tipping point discussions. And where do you see Pledge Ball? What would you like to say to an older, yet wiser me five years from now when we're chit-chatting? This is such a difficult one. I think what I'd like to see is Pledge Ball being used by communities, within communities, to instigate change. So where there's lots of pockets around the world where people are using it as a means of engaging others, that this social shift has really happened. And probably Pledge Ball is less relevant because actually people are starting to prioritize sustainability. And instead, maybe we're looking at instead at how we can support infrastructural changes that support these decisions that people are already making in terms of sustainability. I think that's probably dreaming for five years, but I think that's where I'd like to see it. As we were talking about before, it's going to take as much effort and time and sweat to make a big idea happen as it will to make a little or a small idea happen. And what I've seen in the few years that I've known Katie is that whether it was even in her mindset when she started this thing, she is doing big things and she is going big. And Pledge Ball, I see five years out that Katie will and Pledge Ball will have made a very big impact in behavioral change. And she and they will be onto things that we don't even know what they are right now. And I am really glad that you spent time sharing your story with us. And I just always enjoy our talks and I always learn stuff and I can't wait till the next one. Thank you so much, Katie, for being on Green Sports Pod. Thank you very much for having me and for setting an expectation that now I have to live up to. Would you have it any other way? (laughs) No, absolutely not. (laughs) And thank you all for listening to Green Sports Pod. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you get your podcasts. We will be back to you with another guest and another great Green Sports Pod in the near future. Thank you again for listening to Green Sports Pod. You've been listening to Green Sports Pod, hosted by Lou Blaustein. Subscribe today on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And head on over to greensportsblog.com, the source for news and commentary at the intersection of green and sports. Thanks, and we'll see you next time on Green Sports Pod.